Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. I think it's interesting that Hakeem Jeffries can't answer the question. I think it kind of got a little missed in the conversations that are out there right now. And it's understandable. There's a tremendous amount out there right now. But when Hakeem Jeffries is on CNN being asked about whether he agrees with Biden's border policies. We're talking about the leader of the Democrats in the House. This man taking over for Speaker Pelosi. You would think there's a lockstep on lockstep on lockstep going on here. You tell me if you hear it. Here's the question from Dana Bash over at CNN. You recently went down to the border. You had a firsthand experience uh, and, and saw the situation there. Uh, this is another area where President Biden has ruffled some feathers uh, in your party by rolling out measures to crack down on illegal border crossings and restrict migrants' ability to claim asylums. How do you feel about that policy? Well, I think think the answer should be, oh, yeah, I love any policy that, that Joe Biden has. He doesn't answer in that way. Well, I think uh, we've got to continue to do two things. One, make sure that we have a safe and secure border and take steps anchored in the principle that America is a nation of laws, while at the same time respecting the fact that we also are a nation of immigrants uh, and that part of the foundation of this country has been built on our tremendous diversity, on people coming from all over the world to work hard and pursue the American dream. So yes on the policy or no on the policy? Well, I actually, well, based on my visit to the border, what I have seen Uh, is that some of the steps that President Biden and the administration have taken over the last few months have certainly reduced the flow of illegal border crossings. Well, no, part of that is true. But he doesn't answer the question. But let's go back to his answer. Because his answer, or at least the first part of it, really does dictate where the problem is. Well, I think... Uh, we've got to continue to do two things. One, make sure that we have a safe and secure border and take steps anchored in the principle that America is a nation of laws, while at the same time respecting the fact that we also are a nation of immigrants. How are those two things separate? And how does being a nation of immigrants change the laws? And how does being a nation of immigrants mean we allow illegal immigration? What exactly does this answer say? It says nothing. Just as much as he doesn't answer the question from Dana Bash, he doesn't even make a cogent argument in this idea of we have to do two things. We can follow the law and be a nation of immigrants. We don't allow illegal immigration. We absolutely encourage legal immigration as long as you want to be an American. You'll abide by American laws and actually search out the American way of life. Come on in. When when you want to quote Emma Lazarus to me and say, well, what about the poem 
Uh, there at the bottom of the Statue of Liberty, first things first, uh, not policy. The new Colossus, which is uh, the, the, the bomb, would it be a sonnet? Uh, on the Statue of Liberty is not American policy. It's not law, you freaks. It is just a that a poem. With silent lips, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. That's, that, that's how it ends. By the way, it's not yearning to be free. It's yearning to breathe free. That's always uh, important to remember. Not policy. And it doesn't mean we just take anyone. And it doesn't mean we take people regardless of our laws. As a matter of fact, what it should mean is that we will take you regardless of your circumstance. You don't have to be a rich person to be an American. You don't have to be someone special to be an American. You can be tired and you can be poor, but you got to be in it. You got to want it. And if you don't want it, if you come to America thinking the place you came from is better than where you are, you're not somebody who wants it. Why in the bloody hell would we want you? Ask yourself that question. I have to take you? This, that's not what this is. That's not American policy. And sure as hell ain't the new Colossus. I have to take you? No, I don't. We should want to be a nation of laws. But what does that have to do with being respectful? What? You're a convicted drug, uh, not possessor, distributor. You are part of a cartel. You've murdered 83 people. I have to have respect for you? I, I'm going to tell you right now. No, I don't. This brings us to the ACLU. Talk about another group of people I don't have to have any respect for. In my beloved Indiana, it's getting worse because the ACLU here in Indiana is being very, very proactive in trying to ensure that we have laws that allow children to be mutilated. Of course, we're talking about the concept of being transgender, uh, referred to as transgenderism, and I'm now being told that transgenderism is just an attack on people's existence. Y- you can't keep up with the way people kind of move these uh, conversations. Let's be clear about something. Children don't get to determine their own gender. And children don't get to decide that they can have surgeries to ch- physically change who they are. And no one gets to utilize the terminology that puberty blockers are safe and reversible. Um, Let's start getting into some science. You take medicine to prevent puberty, the onset of puberty, which is an important developmental part of a young person's life. What part of that do you believe is reversible? Come on, doctors. Come on, medical professionals. You give somebody a puberty blocker. 
you physically alter their chemical makeup. They do this for two years when they're 11 years old. They then decide, okay, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm not really a boy, I'm actually a girl. Are you now going to tell me there's no physical repercussion? What if it's four years? What if it's six? It is insane to think that someone is taking Lupron, L-U-P-R-O-N, and the response from the medical community is, oh, yeah, you could take that for years. And, and, and oh, if, if you change your mind, it's okay. Uh, all the normal puberty will happen and you'll be fine. Can I ask a question about bone density? Can I ask a question about other chemical makeup? Can I ask a question about how that has an effect on, I don't know, having children in later life if you're a girl? If the ACLU wants to favor that happening to children, they are more than welcome to. But let us be clear that in the view of the rational mind, they are not actually in the business of defending children. What they are in the business of is allowing children to be exploited by people who want to push this on them as opposed to letting kids just be kids. And they go through things and they get over things. And if they really want to do something when they're an adult, I guess they can. I don't think I get to stop adults. But I am getting a whole bunch of heat on social media, on Twitter, at Tony Katz, for actually being somebody who wants to defend children. And the ACLU, it, it, it's, it's, it's tweet after tweet after tweet about we can't let people do this. This is the ACLU. Gender-affirming care is safe and effective, age-appropriate, evidence-based, medically necessary, life-saving, supported by every major medical association. What is this? What are they talking about? In order to believe this, this gender-affirming care, you have to believe that children can make this decision. That parents should be able to allow children to physically alter themselves. No, no, no. I'm not talking about a nose job. I am talking about irreversible changes here. Pushing for a society, as I wrote back. Where children can be pressured by adults to mutilate themselves is not safe and effective, not age-appropriate, not evidence-based, not medically necessary, not life-saving, and not supported by every major medical association. We're past or far beyond having some conversation about some surgery or even a puberty blocker. We're talking about the abuse of children who aren't allowed to just say something and just leave it be, have a thought and let it marinate for a while. No, you decide for them. You push them. You prod them. You pressure them into, oh, this is who you are. This is what you do. How many more stories do we need of this? Do you really think 
all of these kids making this claim is about science? Of course it's not about science. Anybody with a rational mind knows this is not about science. This is about social contagion. This is about a feeling like 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 you're you're important and you want attention. This is also about societal pressure and that is coming from far too many adults. It would never have dawned on me that you would need legislation to protect kids in this way, but here we are in the real world desperately needing to protect kids. I am never going to apologize for it. You don't allow children to be mutilated. You don't allow adults to abuse children. You never change from those positions. You never back down. You never stay silent. Never. I'm not about to do it. Tony Katz believes government should be involved in the lives of families. I believe children should be protected more often than not from themselves. And it sickens me that we would even have to think about passing legislation to do those things. But here we are. So that's what we're going to do. And I'm not going to back down from some putts on Twitter thinking they got a good zinger on me. We're talking about the lives of kids. I go through tweet after tweet after tweet from the ACLU. These people are out of their minds with this support for something that quite seriously, it is beyond rational thought that anybody could support it. Trans and non-binary Hoosiers, write the ACLU of Indiana, people from Indiana being Hoosiers, of course, uh, want their lawmakers to know that they simply want to live healthy lives without fear and without discrimination. Hate is not a Hoosier value. There's no room for it in our state. To which I wrote back, protecting children is about love, not hate. It would be helpful if the ACLU wasn't trying to hide the purpose of the legislation. ACLU of Indiana writes, politicians have no right to determine what we can read or which ideas we can access. This is about what happens in a school library. The books, the pornography in a school library, whatever it is the parents may decide, because we could agree and disagree with certain parents on certain subjects. So there's now a system for complaining about books. I agree with the ACLU. I say, correct. Politicians have no right to determine what we can read or which ideas we can access. But this has nothing to do with the subject of protecting children, does it? Of course not. This is what we call a red herring. The ACLU of Indiana is just throwing things out to the wind, trying to ensure this legislation, in a myriad of subjects in the state of Indiana at least, don't get passed. But in the main, in my view, it's not like they actually care about protecting kids, whether it be about the books or whether it be about the uh, um, the, the transgenderism, as as is... You, the terminology is utilized. So yeah, I'm gonna say something. I don't, I don't, I didn't know that it took a lot to stand up and say I'm gonna stand up for kids, just like I stand up for young women in sports who want to compete against women and not men. I don't apologize for any of this. I have nothing to apologize for. Apologize for what? It's not that the ACLU could say the same. They should apologize. More importantly, they should stop supporting what is unsupportable and stop defending what is indefensible. I'm Tony Katz. (laughs) 
I swear to you, uh, sometimes we discuss things here that I don't. I, I, I was discussing just just moments ago that I didn't know that standing up for kids, standing up for women in sports, was like like a big thing. Because I think you and I are very much the same on, on that. That seems rational to us. That's like the 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 baseline approach. Of course we would. And so when a, when a boy says they're a girl and wants to compete in, in women's sports, we're like, no. We're not hateful of the child. We just admit that that's not something that we do. That's not going to work. That's not competition. That's something different. And so we say no. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. What we're now told is that saying no to that child is the crime. No, I think telling these young girls that, you know, we're going to erase women from sports is the crime if we're going to decide it's a crime. And, and, and so I, I, again, say no. I was on with Lawrence Jones on Fox News Saturday night. I was still there at, at CPAC. And we were talking about the Black Lives Matter protesters in New York who, if they were illegally detained, and who knows how you even, you know, uh, quantify that, they're going to get paid $21,500. And Lawrence Jones was out of his head about this. He, I mean, he was. I've known the dude a long time. If, if he could have dropped some, some words uh, on, on Fox, he may have. And so we get to my part of the conversation, he asked me about this and about what this does uh, for, for police. I guess my, my point is here is cops all over, especially in New York, they have a recruitment problem. I don't see this helping the recruitment. I just don't see it. Well, of course not, because what, you, what you're witnessing, and I think what we're all witnessing, it's a rational conversation. If the police do X as they're trained, and then you tell me that the police are guilty for doing X as they have been trained, and the people who engage in the violence get paid, which is how people see it, why would anybody be a cop, which has been a story that's been repeated over and over and over and over and over again, based on everything we've seen across the country? I didn't know that that was somehow a shocking thing to say. Or, uh, like, isn't everybody on that page? So I was surprised that that, that clip got, got shared repeatedly on on Fox overnight into into the next day, and uh, I've had people say, "Hey, I saw it." Hey, it is so strange that sometimes you think you have said something so wholly profound that people should honestly be willing to convert their religions. Be like, "I'm following this man. He is a genius." Like sometimes you really feel like you said it exactly like that, and sometimes you just gotta blip, just a, just a little something. That you figure, okay, this is the standard, all right? This is where the connection point, everybody understands this. Or is it sometimes that, you know, saying something that that everybody's thinking, but maybe isn't said enough, you just pick the the right place, right time, whatever. I thought that was amazing. I really did. I was like, wow, that's, what a thing to have people connect with. Something that I, I would figure is so commonplace. But I don't know, maybe honesty is not uh, commonplace. Maybe that's the issue. Hmm. I'm spend some time thinking about that. Um, the DoorDash story. Oh, the DoorDash story. Makes me... You want to talk about saying something profound. 
I'm going to get into that. Find everything, TonyCats.locals.com. This is Tony Katz today. So there is a story in the New York Post about a woman who is a proud cougar. A cougar, uh, an older woman who goes after younger guys. You know, cougar, it's supposed to be sexy or something. I, I thought it was just, you know, one of those things. Old, older guys go after younger women. Older women go after younger men. Or you go after whatever your fetish is, and that's that. And, and that's where I left it. I never even thought it was weird. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. I just thought it was weird that it's a story in the New York Post. Like, like are, are we really that desperate for news where the headline is, I'm a proud cougar at 52. Women hate me, but I won't stop hunting college hunks. Now, I must must warn you all that if you know a woman who still utilizes the term hunk, that that is not somebody to date. That's that. Talk about showing your age. Telling somebody that they are a hunk, to, no, nobody, nobody still uses the word. Neither, neither here nor there. That wasn't the story at the New York Post that moved me. The story at the New York Post that moved me, where I was like, what is it in the world that I'm, I'm, I'm seeing here? This does not make any sense whatsoever. DoorDash driver refused to hand over food after patron gives her $8 tip. Let's dig in, shall we? Because I found this confusing. The video is uh, up on YouTube. Someone took it from their ring uh, door doorbell camera. This woman yells at this man for an $8 tip because she had to go 12 and a half miles to get the food. Now, this took place... Uh, according to the reporting in 2021. But there's no understanding for why things go viral and when they go viral, the whole thing doesn't make any sense. You can't make something go viral. Everything will be fine. And then one day, one person who's got a small band of followers shares it and the next thing you know, 40 billion views. So this happened in New York, I I guess on Long Island. uh, By the way, that is the only time my New York accent ever comes into play. Remember, I was born in in, in Brooklyn, but I really grew up in Jersey, but still, uh, Long Island. It it is Long Island with the G, Long Island, and that's the way it is, and that's always the way it's going to be. This woman explains that she had to drive to Comic, Long Island to pick up the food and then travel to Smithtown, and the woman claims it took her 40 minutes to do this. That's how long... It took 40 minutes to, to, to get this done and, and get this together. Well, okay, let's say it took you 40 minutes. Let's say it took you 40 minutes. How is that my problem? Don't, don't the DoorDash drivers, like, like an Uber driver, agree to the, the whole thing. They see it, they see the gig, all right, I gotta drive here, pick it up, take it over here. Here's the tip, do I want this? That's, that's what they do. Now, usually the tip is shown, but it's possible that the tip isn't shown. But this seems uh, to be a story that she already knew uh, the, the, what the tip was. 
Like she knew it, and and she's she's screaming. and it was like this is the whole video of of the of the lady ringing the bell and and screaming about it. It's from a guy called a Driver Man, and and she's she's just she's just infuriated about this. Oh, I could speak to you actually. And like, how dare you? And that's coming from where the food you ordered is coming from. I don't think you realize the distance that it's come from because then you would never actually have given what you gave. So I think you can come and see face to face. I swear to you, we live in a weird, weird society that this woman, she wants to be confronted about the $8 tip the guy already gave. What would have been okay? If he had given a $10 tip, would that have been okay? Is there a conversation about the distance you had to travel and the tip you're supposed to get? You accepted the gig. This is the same kind of person who believes that we should pay her student loan debt off. You you believe somehow you're entitled to it. You 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 you've earned it. You 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 no, you didn't earn it. You deserve it just based on your existence. And she goes on. I'm not, I don't understand. Um, you well, I think it from where? From the restaurant that you ordered from. Do you realize how far it is? Do you realize you ordered from Carmack and you're in Smithtown? That's a, that's a 15, 20 minute drive. It's not. You need to try to drive it. I just drove it. It's 40 minutes. It's, it's 12 and a half miles. She does. She, it, it, it's crazy. But I think there's something bigger to the story, which is the, this conversation about entitlement. This story is about saying, I have added a value to what I do, and you must now accept the value that I have added to it. This is what we see all over the place. People believe this about uh, their job. They believe this about their position on social media. They believe this in every single facet of their lives. Uh, their, their, their wokeness is, I have added a value here, and you must recognize the value of what it is that I've added. Why aren't you recognizing the value? That's because you're hateful. That's because you're a bigot. That's because you're terrible, etc., etc. There is a, a book... Um, uh, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Is that the name of it? Yeah, I think that's the name of it. My wife's reading the book. I'm actually looking it up right here. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Gabrielle Zevin. And and my wife was sharing a a, a quote from the book that it, that is really telling of where we are generationally because uh, there there is as we have seen in culture over the past couple of decades this, this entitlement culture this this demand for why aren't you acknowledging me why aren't you respecting my space why aren't you doing the thing that i want done if you don't do the thing i want done well then you're hateful you're terrible or you're a racist or bigot or or a classist right this is gonna be a conversation of you're not paying me more because you want to keep me down and you can imagine where this woman is 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 directing this conversation and it, it was a conversation about trauma in this book, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. And it's about how different generations see things and how these generations, whether it be Gen Z or or millennials, how they view their own lives and how they've been taught to view their own lives. I have utilized the terminology before when we talk about race in America. How does one heal the racial divide 
when the wound is so profitable. And, and when you take a look at what Jesse Jackson has done, what Al Sharpton has done, what Black Lives Matter has done, it's an exploitation of race for profit motive. You can't heal anything when, of course, the business model says don't heal anything. As a matter of fact, create further divisions, further risks, further exacerbate. How does one heal the racial divide when the wound itself is so profitable is a clear way of understanding that the grift is more valuable to them than some kind of reconnection in society. No matter what they say, it doesn't matter what Al Sharpton says. He went from Adidas suits to Armani suits. He's still the same shakedown artist, and he learned it from Jesse Jackson, the original shakedown artist. And Patrice Cullors of Black Lives Matter, she just did it a little bit better. Although, that in that one time, nobody has been better over time than Al Sharpton. My goodness gracious. In this book, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, it's a discussion of younger generations and how they view their traumas. Everything is a trauma. And I'm not arguing that there aren't people out there who have had traumas in their life. Of course uh, there are. But everything is a trauma. Yet they view the trauma as the most interesting thing about them, right? This is a generation that'll stand up for itself and stand up for what it believes in and call people out, but it's made them humorless, something that we all absolutely agree with. We've noticed that the millennials and Gen Z have no sense of humor. The stand-up comics of the world have clearly shown us this when they're getting booed off stage and that's, that's cultural appropriation or you can't talk about this group or that group or they're getting attacked on stage when not by Will Smith or whatever the case may be. That's right, a Will Smith. If Chris Rock can now bring it up, everybody, hey, Will Smith is free game. Um, we've noticed how humorless, how dead inside they absolutely positively are. So in the book, uh, talking about this, this, this idea that for these generations, uh, uh, the, the, the trauma is the most interesting thing about them. One of the characters in the book asks, if their traumas are the most interesting things about them, how do they ever, how do they get over any of it? If their traumas are the most interesting things about them, how do they get over any of it? Man, that's really good. And it, it reminded me when, when my wife told me, hey, you, you got to check this out, of this conversation I have about the racial divide in the wound. It's always great when someone can take an idea that's huge and explain it in a way that is simple. If you have people who believe that their traumas are the thing that define them as opposed to some characteristic that they have decided to give themselves. Instead of being defined by what has happened to me, I define myself by what I give out to the world. Me, I define myself by what I give out to the world. Not what has happened to me. What has happened to me is stuff that's happened to me, how I have responded to it. Well, that's the story of who I am as a man, as a human being, as a father, as, as a husband, etc. 
how I have responded to the either controversy or hardship or whatever the case may be. I believe that's how you want to define yourself. That's how you want to share yourself to the world. But yes, I think it's absolutely true. And I think that the Gabrielle Zevin, who, who wrote this book, man, what a wonderful way to put it. If the trauma is how you define yourself, how do you get over it? And the answer is, well, of course you don't because the trauma is everything. The trauma is my victimhood. The trauma is why you have to treat me nice. The trauma is why you have to do this for me. The trauma is why the government has to do that for me. The trauma, the trauma, the trauma, how you can't make the trauma go away. It's so profitable. Not only possibly on a financial side, you know, I had to drive all the way to comic comic for, uh, to, for this food. It's 40 minutes. You have to give me more than $8. It's also reputation capital. And, and, and I did hear when I was at CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, some people engaging this conversation, but they weren't utilizing the terminology properly. The people who push an idea or a theory or make a complaint or make a statement because it, do, it doesn't get them cash. It gets, gets them reputation capital that they can then use at a later date and a later time. And then when they banked enough of it for some big purpose, maybe it gains them more followers, maybe it gains them some sympathy, maybe it gains them a mention just at that moment. And sometimes uh, emotionally, they view that as more valuable reputation capital. Feel free to use it. Just, just quote me on it. But how great is that line? How great is that line? If their traumas are the most interesting things about them, how do they get over any of it? And the answer is they don't. And that's why as a generation, and because it's not true of everyone, right? It's never true of everyone, but as a generation, why they're failing. Because they don't view themselves on how they have responded to the trauma. They view themselves solely upon the trauma. And and we would argue, I think as rational people, whether or not the thing they actually went through is trauma. Well, there was a speaker on college, on on the college campus who was talking about capitalism and I couldn't believe they were doing that. That's not trauma. That's people having a different point of view. You're a wuss. Trauma... Well, I think we could mention a bunch of things that are real trauma, real pain. We shouldn't deny that people don't go through it. Of course they go through it. But getting past it is what makes the the, the, the person. Getting past it is what matters. Getting and, and it's not even past it, finding a place for it and being able to move forward. That's that's the definition. Getting through the hardship, learning from it, getting through the hardship, finding a place for it and still finding a way to survive and move forward. That is what we are connected to. That's what we're attracted to. Uh, Flaunting your trauma, exploiting it. We're not attracted to that. And as for this uh, DoorDash driver, um, first, uh, fire her. And secondly, uh, you get the tip you get. And that's all there is to it. Because, well, that's all there is to it. Keep it here. I'm Tony Katz, and this is Tony Katz Today. A lot of talk about a rally on Wall Street. At the same time, Sirius XM is cutting 8% of its workforce. Who isn't doing a cut right now in the preparation? No, I'm sorry. The existence of the inflationary market and therefore the recessionary market. 
You know how many people are discussing, well, listen, in order to get through this inflation, recession has to come, just has to come. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, it's good to be with you. And then I came across this story, car debt, as in what people are paying for their car loans, people are struggling to make payments across America. Now, when you take a look at COVID, and the federal government was sending out stimulus money everywhere. Okay, people paid uh, for their cars and, and that's it. And and now you've seen car prices, of course, go up and used car prices go through the roof and issues with supply chain. In January, according to CNBC, no, I'm sorry, Fox Business on this one, the percentage of auto borrowers who are at least 60 days late on their bills climbed 2% from December and 20.4% from a year ago. The percentage of severe delinquencies at its highest level since 2006. Loan defaults increased 6.2% over the course of January, up 33% from a year ago. But tell me more about how everything's fine. Now, now, not all of this is government this, that, and the other. Although anytime the government is introducing money to people and giving it to them for with, with with you know no issues, no 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 recourse, no no re- restriction, if you will, just hey, enjoy, spend as you will. Uh, people are going to spend on things that they can't afford. Uh, whatever, I'll keep it till I keep it, and then I'll uh, get rid of it. And let the you you all figure it out. A lot of people. Don't they? They just don't care about those things. It doesn't move them. It doesn't matter to them. And and in a society that doesn't care about, you know, the the idea of uh, of a credit score or anything, right? Okay. And there are reasons not to care. That's a different thing than taking money and and being able to claim that you could do this and spending it and then be like, oh yeah, I can't. But this the story is just another example of things not being okay. Never mind what the human condition is. This is what happens when you think that you can go full Keynesian and just prime the pump. The, the, the debt comes due. You see the job market falling down and the layoffs happening in the tech sector. If, if people believed that the government was going to take care of them, well, now they realize that the government isn't going to be able to take care of them all this time. And they're going to have to handle the bills themselves. And now they can't. I'm wondering if this story is a precursor of really bad things to come, because it seems that way. This is Tony Katz today.